Good evening, it is 5 p.m. and you're tuned in to Kingston Currents here on CFRC 11.9 FM. Brought to you by the local journalism initiative, Queen's University, and What'll I Wear at 732 Princess Street. I'm CFRC's broadcast journalist, Christina Laurie, here to keep you up to date on all things limestone local news. The Greater Kingston Chamber of Commerce has released their second quarterly City Council report card. In this edition of the report card, Council took a dip from Q1's green or positive ranking, dropping to yellow, which indicates potential business concerns. The report card provides a summary and ranking of each business-related decision made by Council throughout the quarter, this most recent document covering May, June, and July. While Council motions do not tell the full story, they provide a summary of business-related motions in the quarter and their potential outcomes for local businesses. I sat down with Karen Cross. CEO of the Greater Kingston Chamber of Commerce, to discuss some of the key concerns identified in this edition of the report card. And there was a dip from green in the first quarter to yellow this quarter. To start us off, what are some of the key decisions that led to this decline? Still, we had six motions that were in the positive, and then there were six in the negative or the red. So it kind of brought it down just slightly, but not, not in a large way. And I think a lot of it came from where we were asking asking for our councillors to not to add unnecessary costs and delays to the process around development. So I think that's really where we kind of slid a little bit into the yellow this time, but overall, I think it was still a good report for our councillors. The main concern detailed in the concluding section of the report was developmental approval delays. What happens when we have delays with our development in our building is it delays shovels into grounds, and people into into new homes or new condos or new rental spaces if we have those delays which then impacts our businesses who can't get their employer can't get new employees or can't or their employees can't get um, places to live they can't expand their businesses because they can't bring in more people because there's no place to, to house them so all those delays from that perspective from the the end user, and then for the actual developer and builder, the costs um, of them not being able to go to construction are costs and delays. So every time there's a delay, there's cost delays to them um, in that building, which then will translate out uh, to, to higher costs at the, for the end user, because that has to be paid for somewhere. Cross also discussed the one decision marked in red for this quarter, the council's vote in favor of a motion to rebuke the provincial government regarding the strong mayor powers granted to Kingston's mayor, as well as 25 other Ontario mayors effective July 1st. In the report, it was stated, quote, the motion by council and resulting letter to the province will have no effect other than to further strain relationships with the province and use up staff and council time that could be spent on municipal priorities, end quote. This is an interesting one because I know I've been asked this question before. Why why were you opposed to the strong mayor's vote and why they were in favor of this letter? And and then all we're trying to say here is that the mayor that the strong mayor's powers were were given to two mayors through the provincial government. The municipal government municipal governments can't overturn that ruling. So our concern was simply that um, using up city staffers time and council's time can be better spent on municipal issues on something that they have control over and this was not an area that they had control over it was it was something a symbolic motion i believe on their part to, to state that they didn't they weren't in favor of this but it really didn't affect any change 
Kingston residents have a few closures to look out for on Labor Day weekend. The Labor Day weekend on September 4th will impact services, programs, and facility hours on Monday for the City of Kingston, Utilities Kingston, and other community organizations. Scheduling impacts include garbage, green bin, and recycling. There is no collection on September 4th, and collection occurs the day after your regular collection day. Kingston Area Recycling Center is closed. Kingston Transit, all buses will follow a Sunday schedule, except for Route 18, which will follow its regular weekday schedule. All Queens routes, Route 20 and Route 17W, 17D, 17P, and 17A will resume their routes on Tuesday, September 5th. Kingston Access Services operates with limited service. You can call 613-542-2512 for more information. Administrative offices, including housing and social services on Montreal Street and Provincial, offenses are closed. Utilities Kingston and Kingston Hydro are both closed. In the event of a utility emergency, such as a gas smell, power outage, or a water main break, you can call the Utilities Kingston 24-hour number number at 613-546-1181. For recreation facilities, the Invista Center and arenas are closed. Artillery Park Aquatic Center, Rideau Hearts Community Center, Kingston East Community Center, and Invista Center are closed. Culligan Water Park is open. Kingston Frontenac Public Library is closed. Portsmouth Olympic Harbor and Confederation Basin Marinas are open. The Kingston Grand Theater, the Pump House Museum, and the Tet Center are closed. Mosquitoes carrying West Nile virus found in KFLNA. Recent surveillance efforts conducted by KFLNA Public Health have found the presence of mosquitoes carrying the West Nile virus in Kingston, Frontenac, and Lenox and Addington. Additionally, Public Health Ontario confirmed that a crow from the KFLNA region tested positive for West Nile virus. These findings come as a result of ongoing mosquito collection and testing initiatives carried out by KFLNA Public Health and with the support of the Public and Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative to submit and test deceased wildlife in our region. The West Nile virus is transmitted to humans and animals through bites of infected mosquitoes. While most individuals who get West Nile virus exhibit no symptoms, about 1 in 5 infected persons may develop mild signs, including fever, headache, body aches, joint pains, vomiting, or rash. Most people who come into contact with West Nile virus recover fully from these symptoms. However, less than 1% of those infected may experience more severe symptoms and health effects. Individuals over 50 years of age and those with underlying medical conditions or weakened immune systems are at a heightened risk of severe conditions. The last reported human case in KFLNA occurred in 2018. In a quote from Sarah Riding, manager of environmental health at KFLNA, she stated, The importance of taking preventative steps now that we've found mosquitoes with the West Nile virus in our KFLNA region is key. Simple things like avoiding being outdoors during dawn and dusk when those pesky mosquitoes are buzzing around the most, wearing clothes to cover up, using bug sprays, and making sure there's no standing water around, these are all big parts of keeping the virus from spreading. End quote. While there is no specific treatment or cure for West Nile virus, prevention is key to avoid infection. Prevention measures include restricting outdoor activities during dawn and dusk when mosquitoes are most active. Wear long pants and loose-fitting long sleeve shirts, socks, and hats, and light-colored clothing as mosquitoes are attracted to dark colors. <sighs> when going outdoors, use insect repellents that contain DEET or a keratin, and follow the manufacturer's instructions. Remove standing water as mosquitoes lay eggs in stagnant water, for example, old tires, rain barrels, toys, wading pools. Use screens on windows and doors to keep mosquitoes out of your home. If you find a dead bird on your property, avoid touching dead birds with bare hands where possible. Instead, use a tool to dispose of it. If you must handle the bird, wear rubber gloves and wash hands well with soap and water after handling. In most cases, dead animals can be put in the garbage or buried. If you are uncertain about disposal requirements, please consult your local municipality. You can report dead birds to the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. You can visit kflaph.ca wnv for tips on how to protect yourself and loved ones.
The City of Kingston and Kingston Police remind students to stay safe during move-in and orientation week. The City of Kingston and Kingston Police would like to welcome new and returning post-secondary students to the community while reminding everyone to stay safe during move-in and orientation activities. It's an exciting time in Kingston as post-secondary students return to the community, says Acting Chief of Kingston Police, Scott Fraser. We'd like to encourage everyone to act responsibly when participating in back-to-school events and to be aware of the risks associated with large unsanctioned gatherings, says Chief Fraser. The University District Safety Initiative, UDSI, will be in effect from Monday, August 28th at 12 a.m. until Sunday, September 10th at 11.59 p.m. The purpose of the UDSI is to educate community members and to mitigate the risks of large unsanctioned gatherings, including strains on emergency services, dangerous behaviors, and traffic disruptions. During this time, community partners, including city enforcement staff and Kingston Police, will have an increased presence in the university district. Bylaw officers can also issue administrative monetary penalties for nuisance party and noise bylaw infractions. The safety and well-being of the entire community remains our top priority. Launching the University District Safety Initiative has given us the opportunity to collaborate with community partners, students, and property owners to ensure that everyone understands their role in keeping our community safe, says Kyle Compo, licensing and enforcement manager for the City of Kingston. He goes on to say, we're looking forward to working together so that everyone can enjoy these final weeks of summer responsibly. Bylaw enforcement and Kingston Police have distributed educational materials to residents of the University District. Community members are encouraged to learn more about the municipal measures in place to discourage unsanctioned large gatherings and high-risk or disruptive behaviors by visiting the UDSI webpage on the City of Kingston website. Calling on not-for-profits and registered charities in Kingston. Do you have a green project to fund? The City can help. Applications for the 2023-24 Kingston Community Climate Action Fund are now open. We're thrilled to continue supporting local charities and not-for-profits in their efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, says Julie Salter-Kean, manager of the City's Climate Leadership Division. Together, we have the power to turn ideas into impactful action that will bring us closer to our goal of carbon neutrality by 2040. Introduced in 2020, the KCCAF helps eligible community organizations become part of citywide solutions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Interested charities and not-for-profits are invited to review the applicant guide to learn more about the fund, projects it helps realize, and frequently asked questions. Successful applicants will have their projects featured on the City of Kingston website, and donors will be able to review them and target their donations for their chosen projects. During the 2022-23 fundraising year, more than $57,000 was raised through the generous support of the community. Supporting green initiatives in the community, including the Frontenac Club Daycare's Energy Retrofit Project and Sustainable Kingston's Electric Vehicle. In a quote from Jeff Hendry, Chief Operating Officer at Sustainable Kingston, he states, thanks to the Kingston Community Climate Action Fund and the James Braden Auto Group, we are able to purchase an electric vehicle that will significantly reduce our emissions. Our energy advisors will now be able to travel sustainably across the city to carry out home energy audits, embodying our shared commitment to a greener future. September 1st to October 15th has been declared Open Farm Days 2023 by the County of Frontenac, City of Kingston, South Frontenac, Frontenac Islands, Central Frontenac, and North Frontenac to highlight the importance of agriculture in the region. The six-week calendar of events offers opportunities to explore, engage, and learn more about the farming and where our local food comes from. It's an opportunity to bring friends and family together and explore the farms, farmers markets, and various locations across our region. There are locations across Frontenac County and Kingston that are welcoming visitors to explore local agribusinesses. 
services and get an inside look. Each location is offering unique experiences including tours of fields, beekeeping, introduction to growing of fruits and vegetables, demonstration on coffee roasting, harvesting hops, learning about animals, farm equipment, culinary tours, tastings, and experiences. Debbie Miller, Community Development Officer of Frontenac County States, farms, chefs, and community organizations have created some exciting experiences to demonstrate to visitors the unique things their site offers. Visiting a farm offers a memorable opportunity to really connect the food, the land, farmers, and the chefs. There are options on how you can participate with a combination of ticketed and drop-in events throughout the six weeks. Ticketed experiences allow farmers and chefs to connect more closely, to share the unique characteristics of their farm or food with more in-depth opportunity. The community events offer a chance to drop in and connect with agriculture in a less structured, self-guided manner. The launch event for Open Farm Days will take place on Friday, September 1st at 4 p.m. at the Frontenac Farmers Market in Centennial Park in Harrowsmith with speeches and an official ribbon cutting farm style. The Frontenac Farmers Market takes place from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. For the complete Open Farm Days 2023 listing or to purchase tickets, you can visit openfarms.ca. The Kingston School of Art is currently accepting submissions from artists for their 2023 juried exhibition. This year marks the sixth year of running the exhibition, which is one of the key fundraising events for the nonprofit Art Center. Visual artists age 18 and above from the city of Kingston, Loyalist Township, Wolf Island, and Frontenac Islands, as well as Frontenac, Leeds and Grenville, and Hastings Counties are invited to submit their work for the show, which will take place in the Kingston School of Art Window Gallery on Princess Street. The event itself will include an exclusive members-only preview the day before the opening reception on October 7th, over $1,500 of prizes presented to artists in three categories, and more. I sat down with Maddie Andrews, Executive Director at the Kingston School of Art, to talk about this year's exhibition. And my name is Maddie Andrews, and I'm the Executive Director at Kingston School of Art. I've been with KSOA since 2021 now. Awesome, and I mean, we're here to talk about the Juried Exhibition. How did this start? So this is the sixth annual Juried Art Exhibition and Sale at Kingston School of Art. So it began six years ago now as a general fundraiser for the school. How does the annual Juried Exhibition help support the Kingston School of Art? Um, serve to further KSOA's mission. So as a nonprofit charitable organization, we seek to provide cost-effective year-round art classes for children, youth, and adults. And we also offer studio-based hands-on instruction and practical artistic experiences for all. So through the creation of an inclusive and supportive environment, we encourage artistic individuality and innovation, as well as cultivate an appreciation for the arts within the greater community. So really all of the proceeds um, raised from the juried art exhibition go towards furthering our mission and ensuring that we can continue operating in this way. Awesome. Yeah. During COVID-19, how did that impact the juried exhibition? How did you guys adapt? And I was also curious if this is your first year fully back or if it was last year. For sure. So so like everyone else, we did need to adapt during the pan pandemic, which impacted our juried exhibition. However, we have since returned to our pre-pandemic format with the exhibition, reception, and awards occurring in person in our window art gallery. Last year was the um, first year that we returned to this pre-pandemic format with everything being in person, which was incredible, um, though our reception was still masked at that point. I was wondering if there's anything that's especially new or different this year about the exhibition. Much of the juried exhibition is similar to last year and the previous years this year. However, this year we are offering a juried exhibition preview on Friday the 6th of October for our KSOA members. This is a perk for our new membership campaign which launched in July. So during this juried exhibition preview, members will have early access to the exhibition and have the opportunity to hear from our jurors about the selection process. And this is a brand new initiative for us. Oh, that's really interesting because I was also going to ask about 
your selection committee and your jurors. I know there's some big names on there this year and I'm also curious about their process. Yeah, so this year we have three jurors, Brian Hode, Erica Olson, and Otis Tomasowskis. They are all local artists practicing in Kingston. So Erica works in traditional painting and pastel drawing with subject matters such as still life and landscapes and has equally demonstrated strength in conceptual work. Otis, combi Otis combines printmaking and collage to create experimental pieces with rich textural surfaces and Brian works in painting and printmaking. He is also currently um, involved in teaching the Bachelor of Fine Arts program at Queen's University. So with each of them bringing their own experiences across these different uh, media and techniques, they will together make the decision of not only what is included in the juried exhibition, but also our award winners. What kind of artists are eligible to submit and what kinds of pieces are you looking for? Entry is open to residents ages 18 and above of the city of Kingston, Wolf Island and the Frontenac Islands and the counties of Frontenac, Lennox and Addington, Leeds and Grenville and Hastings, so the surrounding area. Beyond that though, it's very open. Um, both professional and emerging artists are invited to submit. In terms of what we're looking for, so participants may enter up to three artworks of their choosing. They must be original pieces in a two-dimensional medium and be ready to hang. There are more detailed instructions about specifics on our website, but beyond that, again, we're very open and excited to see how different people approach this submission process. I know you recently put out a call to artists, but you've been accepting pieces for a little while. What's been coming in? How's it been so far? So we actually find that most people submit during the final few days of the call, but so far we've been receiving mostly paintings in oils, acrylics, and watercolors with a few examples of printmaking interspersed in there too. Is 65 the normal number of pieces that are selected? In short, yes. We can display a maximum of 65 artworks in our window art gallery. And in previous years, the number of pieces has hovered around that number, but ultimately it's at the discretion of the jurors. Also this year, I know there's $1,500 in prizes. I believe that's the same as previous years or at least last year. I was wondering if you could get into the categories a little bit. The amount is the same as the past two years. Prizes are formed through donations from our generous Jurid exhibition sponsors. We have, yes, over $1,500 in prizes to be awarded, including three juror awards, the first, second, and third, a People's Cho Choice Award, where visitors are welcome to vote for their favorite piece throughout the duration of the exhibition, and it is awarded at the end of the show, and then nine honorable mentions. And so these will be decided by the jurors and then the People's Choice Award by the public. Public. Just to backtrack for a quick second, because you mentioned your sponsors there. I was wondering, is, has it been consistently the same few sponsors throughout the years? Are there some new ones this year? Yeah, so we have quite a few consistent sponsors who have gen generously supported the juried art show the past few years. Um, so it really would be impossible to run this um, fundraiser without their support, their local businesses and individuals. So a huge thank you is due to them. Um, the sponsors include the In Memory of Henny Marsh KPMG, Health for Life Medical Center, Mike Scranage and Karen Charlton, Kingston Frameworks, Mark Peabody Custom Builder, Art Noise, and Cunningham Swan Lawyers. 
So folks can look forward to this on October 7th. How can folks enjoy the exhibition? Folks can stop by our window art gallery located at the intersection of Princess Street and Victoria Street throughout October to see the, uh, the juried exhibition. We open on Saturday, the 7th of October, officially, and run until the 29th of October. All are welcome to attend our opening reception on Saturday, the 7th of October from 12 to 4 p.m. with awards and remarks being given at one o'clock. And if folks want to become members, they are very welcome to then attend our members preview the evening before on the Friday. Once again, that was Maddie Andrews with the Kingston School of Art chatting about this year's juried exhibition. Artists are welcome to submit their work until September 10th, 2023, and can find more information regarding submission guidelines on the Kingston School of Art website. artistic and conversational events and installations surrounding the site of Bell Park in Kingston will be taking place between August 26th and 30th, with events split between the park itself and the Art and Media Lab at the Isabel Bader Centre for the Performing Arts. The project was organized by a group of researchers behind the Bell Park project, which aims to both conduct research and spread awareness about the complex, problematic, and ongoing history of Bell Park. The site itself has undergone vast transformation in its natural environment, and its future remains unknown as the city considers what exactly to do with the site. This coupled with its social and political history and present debates surrounding the space, inspired the Unearthed Project. In an interview with CFRC 11.9 FM's arts coordinator, Lauren Tucker, Dr. Laura Murray, professor in English and co-director of the Cultural Studies Program at Queen's University and co-lead on the Bell Park Project, got into the details of Unearthed. Dr. Laura Murray describes some of the history of Bell Park and the Bell Park Project. Well, Bell Park is very centrally located in Kingston on Montreal Street, but oddly enough, a lot of people don't really know where it is or haven't been there or haven't spent a lot of time there. Um, but uh, to me, it's always been interesting. I've been researching the waterfront area and working class histories and colonial histories of Kingston for quite some time. And Bell Park was a wetland for, I guess, thousands of years. Then uh, at some point in the 20th century, it gets made into a dump. And then in 1973, they turn it into a park. And it was a, a golf course as well. And uh, then as that waned, uh, there was a bunch of planning process that the city did about what its new future would be. And then the pandemic came. And uh, it's a big park, it's 46 hectares. There's this big triangle and it reaches out into the river and at the end of it is Bell Island, which is sacred indigenous space, burial space. And uh, when the pandemic came, you probably remember this, uh, and it continues to this day, uh, unhoused people have been living in that space. Right. And, you know, it's kind of an available space. Uh, it, it, it makes sense that it's close to downtown, and uh, they don't have other places to live, so uh, that, that will likely continue. Um, so there's, there's all this current complexity and historical complexity, and it's also both an ugly place and a beautiful place. It's got all these different dimensions. Um, I uh, have been taking the lead on this project with Dorit Naaman, who is originally from Jerusalem and has done a lot of work on the hidden histories of Jerusalem, in particular Palestinian histories, histories of neighborhoods from which Palestinian folks were kicked out, and people now living there don't really know that history. So we both have this idea of how can we help people see things that they won't ordinarily see in their places that they just live in that are ordinary to them. And we're also working with Erin Sutherland who did 
her uh, PhD at Queen's in uh, Cultural Studies, and she's a Métis settler scholar uh, curator. She curated for her PhD project um, a memorable, really memorable series of performances called Talking Back to Johnny Mac. That was in 2015, and this was at the time when the Sir Johnny MacDonald statue was still presiding in, in City Park. And what she did is she invited a bunch of performance artists, um, a number of them Indigenous, to interact with that statue as a kind of critique and drawing attention to the, the problematic histories, the violent histories that it represented. And uh, so she was really creative about bringing, again, you know, the statue at the time was really just starting to um, come to public prominence as a problem. It had been celebrated. Sir John A. Macdonald's Bicentennial was that year in 2015. Okay. And um, so bringing artists to speak to it and with it yeah. was Aaron's way of helping people really start to think about it differently and I, I think it had a huge impact it was really impressive so we invited her to come back with us um, uh, on this project as well because we're really interested in how art can be used to just dislodge people's assumptions and, mm-hmm. and get them thinking about things that they might have taken for granted. Marie also discusses how this project will foster conversation between visitors. People will talk with each other. They will have an experience that will make them think about this space. And the city did have these plans to, you know, quite control the park in future. And right now, I think they haven't got the budget to go that way. Um, And maybe it'll cause people to have some discussions about different kinds of parks, you know, that serve different kinds of people and plants and purposes, and what, maybe have second thoughts about what the future of this one might be. I think in these settings, because they are going to be really informal too, we really, we're sure that people will chat with each other, and because we have held other events in the park, we have a certain kind of a following there, and then other people will come from other places, so um, I, I think that if people both feel the complexity but also have some new ideas and and, uh, have some conversations with people, that may make the whole experience um, less mystifying than if you're just by yourself in a solo gallery in the dark. You can listen to the full interview with Dr. Murray on our podcast network on the Kingston Curator. Be sure to catch some of the unearthed events taking place until tomorrow, August 30th. That is all things current in Kingston for this week. Thank you for listening to CFRC's local news programming, brought to you by the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada under the Local Journalism Initiative, Queen's University, and What Will I Wear at 732 Princess Street. Be sure to stay tuned for more CFRC programming coming up next.